Hi, welcome to my podcast. My name is Jennifer Pelham, and in this podcast, I will discuss how my conceptualization of the teaching of secondary English language arts has changed through taking this specialization course. I will do the podcast by asking myself questions that I might get in the future from either parents at schools I'm teaching in or other teachers and administrators. I'm also going to focus on what I got from the course in terms of the questions. So my first question is, why is teaching secondary language arts important? I've been asked this question a lot throughout my life and most people have asked this kind of question because they can't see the point of teaching secondary language arts. I've never really had a good answer other than because I like English and I think it helps engage with multiple perspectives. But when it came down to it, when I was questioned, I was never able to provide skeptical people with a rationale that was persuasive and fully engaged with the kind of competencies and real world skills that English language arts provides and also that they were looking for in asking. So from this course, I've been able to develop a much better understanding of how to navigate questions like this, and hopefully now I can provide credible and convincing arguments for teaching language arts to reluctant parents in the future. So this came mostly from my engagement with critical encounters in secondary English and from our in-class discussions. So in Critical Encounters, Deborah Appelman explains that literary theory provides readers with a way to uncover the often invisible workings of a text. She explains that many people consider literary theory as arcane and esoteric. She further explains that many people can't discern what literary theory could do for the average adolescent, which is where the people who are asking me, why am I teaching secondary language arts and why is that important, um, were coming from. She then brings up critical lenses and talks about how critical lenses provide students with a way of reading their world. The lenses provide a way of seeing differently and analytically. It can help them read the culture of school as well as popular culture. For me, this relates a lot to an article that I read during my English degree, which was from Terry Eagleton, who Deborah Appelman also talks about. His article was called The Rise of English, and he discusses the turning point of the late 19th century, uh, where English came to replace religion in kind of controlling the masses, is what he was getting at. So he says that literature became the ideological force that engaged the lower classes and forced them to empathize with higher classes' perspectives, and it was in an effort to make people forget about their problems through including them in the engagement of literature so that they wouldn't revolt. I think that in engaging with this idea of literature as a form of ideology and control, we can see how troubling it is to have literature be studied by only a small group of society, so namely academics, and also how powerful it can be. So we should really emphasize the importance of using literature as a tool for unmasking ideology and oppressive and unequal structures within our world. And then in doing so, we need to focus on making literature useful and interesting for everyone. So if adolescents, adolescents are able to use literature to begin to read the world around them, meaning school culture and popular culture, then 
This is the first step to ensuring that we are teaching students to become lifelong learners who view their lives and the world around them through critical lenses. Lenses that will help them to be advocates and activists for change, no matter where they go in their lives. So another part of this is choosing to apply theoretical lenses to things students will be interested in. So the ki this kind of purpose was really evident when we talked about Katy Perry's song in class. Looking at the lyrics in different critical lenses really helped me to understand how to engage secondary English language arts students in a school, a K through 12 school. Throughout my university studies, I've come to realize I've I am pretty far removed from my mentalities when I was in K through 12. And in order for students in a K through 12 school to want to explore more in terms of theory and text, I think now that the teacher first needs to engage their interest in theory in the context of something that they already know about and are interested in. So since they're immersed in popular culture and interact with it daily, this popular culture is a good place to start and to ignore it would be ridiculous. <laughs> so this exercise really opened my mind to how anything can be studied and should be studied at that level. So I could get students to take a critical look at representation in shows like The Bachelor and how it relates to racial marginalization in North America. I could look at songs from popular artists and get students to engage with the backstory of artists' life lives in relation to their songs. The options are really open and to me now, when I looked at it before, I had a very narrow-minded kind of traditional approach and would have chosen materials that I like now without really considering how far I've come in my interests since being 12 to 18. <laughs> so my next question is, how will you build an inclusive environment in your secondary language arts classroom for ELL students? Since the beginning of my education degree, I have emphasized inclusivity in the classrooms as part of my teaching philosophy. However, I was not aware of the techniques used to help make secondary English language arts classrooms inclusive. I also didn't fully understand how to make lessons that would engage ELL learners without being reductive about it or simplifying the material. I almost assumed that information would need to be made simpler in order to include ELL students. In Scaffolding Language, Scaffolding Learning, the author Pauline Gibbons explains that compensatory programs have focused on drilling students in low-level language and reading skills that are excised of meaningful context at the expense of any authentic intellectual challenge. The ongoing result of these programs is that further disadvantage may become structured into the curriculum of the school. She posits that creating a high challenge, high support learning environment is the key to ensuring the success of all students. She gives examples of techniques and activities to implement in classrooms. And some that I really connected with were um, when learners are expected to write a persuasive text, allowing ELL students to write the text partially in their mother language or the teacher providing scaffolds to at the beginning of sections so providing connective so first my second point on the other hand uh, she also discusses framing the text before reading having the teacher read parts of the text before so doing modeled reading and then 
in preserving language and culture, Mina and Tobiasen suggest some other important strategies for including ELL students, like including multiple language in the classroom, representing ELL learners as well as multilingual students within our classrooms. So giving students the opportunity to share their own identities and home lives. So this could mean having resources in the classroom, such as multilingual books, graphic organizers, picture dictionaries, novels with multiple viewpoints, perspectives, and cultures. And while I don't feel that my mentality overall about ELL students and inclusion um, has changed throughout this course, I definitely feel more equipped with an understanding of how to include ELL students in support of my mentality. So in the presentation shown in class, we talked about technology in relation to teaching secondary English. And I think it's important to address this. So another question that I could be asked would be, how can we incorporate technology into the secondary English language arts classrooms? In what can technology do for English? Davies explains that there is no body of hard evidence that tells us when we should best use technology or avoid it. So we haven't managed to construct any kind of system theory that relates the capabilities of technology to the needs of English. I myself, being very limited in my experience of teaching with the use of technology, as well as experience with technology itself, assumed I would not really be incorporating technology in my classrooms outside of showing videos and clips. After taking this course, however, I now see that this mentality was largely fear-based as I really struggle with using technology myself. So the importance of implementing technology in classrooms. So it also helped me really inform some of my prior experiences in field one when I observed a deaf and hard of hearing classroom. So in the classroom, the students who were deaf and hard of hearing had to use devices to both listen and communicate with the teacher. The teacher did use technology to show clips, but she also was well-versed in the technology for deaf and hard of hearing students learning. She was taking the students to the deaf and hard of hearing museum as well for a field trip where they and their parents could learn more about deaf and hard of hearing individuals as well as engage more with the technologies and supports needed. So in this course, I realized how important what the teacher is doing is. So she had students that needed support by certain technologies that originally she wasn't familiar with. So she brought in experts. She became informed and tried to help parents who might not have any experience with the kind of technologies that they were talking about to also become more informed. She explained that some of the parents had no idea about how to support their children and that the school often didn't fund certain technologies needed in the deaf and hardened hearing classrooms to support students in their learning. So in thinking about this, I realized that although at first glance, an English language arts classroom may not seem like the place for the implementation of technology, it is in fact one of the best ones. It shows students, parents, school administrators, and boards how important access to communication between all people is and how much of an asset, asset technology can be in that process. It also demonstrates to all students how much technology can aid them 
in life, in communicating with all types of people. Since English is all about the desire to open up new avenues for communication and connection among people through building narrative empathy and showing multiple perspectives, technology can be a huge asset. This is not the only reason to incorporate technology in the secondary English language arts room, but it's one of the major ones. I also really liked the checklist given in class that um, provides a list of checks to see if technology implementation is effective in a classroom. And um, some of the questions were, does technology supplement or enhance teaching? Is the use of technology limited to presentational aspects of teaching? So I referenced before how I used to think that I would just show video clips. And now I don't think that that is incorporating technology effectively necessarily all the time. So some of the other questions were, does the use of technology support collaboration between students? So in the example that I just referenced in the deaf and hard of hearing classroom, I think it really, well, by necessity, it supported communication between students because they needed devices to be able to communicate with one another. Um, some used devices to hear and others used them to write. Is the use of technology compositional, compositional in its focus? Um, and also, does the use of technology support multimodal engagement? Does it allow students choice and the ability to show their learning in multimodal ways? This is a really big one for me. Um, and this question in particular, I've come to realize the importance of, especially through this course. So giving students multiple modes to show their learning is extremely important. Even being given the option to do this project as a podcast instead of an essay has shown me how much confidence um, and engagement options can provide. So if a student feels uncomfortable presenting to a classroom, which I sometimes do, um, being given the option to do a podcast is extremely confidence building and it helps scaffold presentation skills until the student builds up the confidence to effectively present to a class. So using multimodal forms to engage with by incorporating technology, like as simple as this, and having the ability to do a podcast is um, a great way to engage all learners, I think. And this also relates to the clarify and extend section of the program of studies 1.2, where one of the outcomes is that students will integrate their own perspectives and interpretations with new understandings developed through discussing and through experiencing a variety of oral, print, and other media texts. Giving students multimedia forums to look at and then as well to present projects and reflections through allows them to engage in multimodal thinking. And as well, moving on, we have what texts will you be reading? How and why did you select them? So I've always believed that various and multiple texts should be read in secondary English language arts classrooms. However, taking this course has really opened my eyes to how I as a teacher can confidently use various texts in classrooms and deal with potential pushback from parents, other teachers, etc. My peer Spencer did a presentation in class and I thought that it really demonstrated the importance of choosing texts that represent underrepresented identities in our education curriculum and teaching. 
He opened his presentation by talking about how many teachers view teaching texts like these. And uh, he gave a quote to kind of talk about this. He said that the quote read, in fact, the question teachers usually bring to me when they want to include an LGBT text in their class is not what's the best, most powerful LGBT young adult novel you've read recently, but is there a book you think I could get away with without ruffling too many feathers? I think this explains a major tragedy in our education system because it shows that there are teachers that want to engage with topics that have been previously thought of as taboo and explicit, but that there are so many and that are so important for identity representation, um, but they are afraid. And I think what I really took from this presentation is that I myself have to be less afraid of engaging with the pushback that comes from exploring important topics and connecting many students to their learning that might otherwise be quite disconnected. It is important to show LGBTQ students that especially and other identities that are underrepresented that their identities are not taboo as Spencer was saying. This can be done through selecting texts where there are LGBTQ characters that live fully realized, happy lives in all different parts of the world. It's not enough just to pick a book at random that has an LGBTQ character. And on this front, I think that I've realized how my mind has shifted on teaching certain texts in classrooms. And I've realized that texts need to be chosen to represent all the students and backgrounds in the classroom. Because throughout university, I almost assumed um, that if something was interesting to me, it was worthwhile to read for everyone. This was a rather um, selfish mentality, but it was only recently that I really engaged with the idea that my entire education supported and encouraged my view that simply engaging with great works like, like Steinbeck or Ernest Hemingway would suffice and inspire everyone because they are part of the literary canon. However, now I realize that one of the most important facets of teaching English is inclusion and representations. And one of the most important facets of that is the text that we choose. We are trying to build bridges between peoples and to destabilize ideological oppressive structures. We can only do this in teaching English if we choose material that aims to do that and aims to represent the perspectives of those who have been marginalized and oppressed. So the canon of English literature has too long been dominated by a singular voice, race, social class, etc. And it is really time we moved beyond that. Another important realization I made is that it is almost just as important to educate and encourage other educators to teach these texts as it is to simply teach them. If Spencer's point is true, that we as a teaching collective are afraid to engage with materials that might receive pushback, but that are important, then we should work on building up other teachers in doing so and supporting their efforts, because this kind of change may be difficult to implement alone. I remember that during practicum two, I had to think of a book to share with the class in my first week. I had just finished reading Aristotle and Dante Discover the Secrets of the Universe, and I thought it was absolutely fabulous. I wanted to share it, but I hesitated. Because, and I hesitated because the story is about two young boys in the LGBTQ community. And not only that, but the boys have a very explicit, loving relationship throughout the novel. And there are moments of romance between them. 
And I was never exposed to this in school myself. If there was an LGBTQ character, the text portrayal was subtle, and the character's identity was ambiguous. It wasn't necessarily clear. I remember the only reference being that was actually explicitly made to an LGBTQ identity in a text I studied in K through 12 was The Merchant of Venice, which is Shakespeare. But the subtlety of the language and the portrayal made the character really hard to define. His sexuality was simply alluded to instead of stated. So in in terms of choosing a text like Aristotle and Dante, where the characters fully realize and act on their identities in a way that students would be able to recognize as a romantic relationship, I'm ashamed to say I was unsure. I wasn't sure if the teacher would be okay with the choice, and I did have that sense of taboo even with the changes made in the education system since I went to school. So in retrospect, I'm really sad that I felt this way because I don't think I'm alone in feeling this. And it demonstrates that using texts with perspectives from the LGBTQ community and other communities isn't necessarily normalized in schools. In my future teaching practice, I intend to make a huge effort to focus on texts like Aristotle and Dante discover the secrets of the universe and also to reflect myself and get others to reflect on why teaching a book where two of the characters of the same sex are explicit with their, or not explicit, overt with their romantic relationships and they kiss can seem taboo when teaching a book where two characters of the opposite sex kiss. If one book is not appropriate or explicit, then neither is the other one, as Spencer said. And it is our responsibility as teachers to normalize this in education so that teachers coming into the profession will be extremely comfortable with using texts that represent communities that are currently underrepresented in our classrooms. This will also allow students who do belong to those communities that have been underrepresented to reflect on how they fit into the world around them and other students will be able to engage with the idea of privilege and positionality This connects to two particular sections from the program of studies also. One is 3.3, which is organize, record, and evaluate. One of the outcomes is students will reflect on new understanding and its value to self and others. And I think the the important part of of that is the value to self and others. How are these texts going to be valuable? How do you see yourself in the text? How, How are your experiences different? from those characters in the text, how are they the same? And then also section 5.1, respect others and strengthen community. And one of the outcomes from that section is students will compare personal challenges and situations encountered in daily life with those experienced by people or characters in other times, places, and cultures portrayed in oral print and other media texts. So some final takeaways and considerations. So I want to reemphasize the note that while many of my perceptions of teaching in English language arts classrooms has remained the same in regards to um, from before, I've also learned so many different tools and techniques to help me implement my visions. So in teaching adolescent writers, Kelly Gallagher gives a wide list of scaffolding methods to use for both reading and writing. I found these extremely useful. For instance, I will be using exit slips in my classrooms where students will have short periods of time, like five minutes, to summarize their learnings from a class, um, a class lecture or discussion. 
I will also try to scaffold my reading like Gallagher describes in her activity on George Orwell's 1984. She talks about teaching 1984 and she suggests an activity where students could be introduced to the idea of thought crime before reading by being given two points to think about prior. One point would be getting students to consider what thought crime might mean before engaging in the text. I think it's extremely important to use these pre-scaffolding exercises when looking at texts. A big part of critical thinking is the ability to anticipate questions and happenings so that one can respond and adapt to new perspectives that they come into contact with. So getting students to think about how to read a book helps to suggest how they might read a situation in their lives as well, what they might think about prior to engaging in an academic environment or a personal one. Or even, or I mean, like a personal one being just as simple as a discussion with their parents. This can also be extremely useful in getting students to engage with historical perspectives if the teacher is able to scaffold material by giving historical context beforehand, which I think is so, so important and something that was really lacking in my education. Um, this could be done through a variety of activities, including web searches, which we talked a lot about. So... Um, this connects to section 2.2, which is respond to texts of the program of studies, which says in one of the outcomes that students will consider historical context when developing own points of view or interpretations of oral print and other media texts. So overall, I learned a lot from engaging with this course, and I hope that I now have the skills and tools as well as the courage to try and implement these learnings into my future classrooms. Thank you very much. This concludes my podcast episode.